0: running liftoff we have a liftoff it is 509. I'm Eric Erickson back again today for the 4th hour of radio. The phone number 404 872 800 WSB Talk filled in for Herman Kane this morning when the big breaking news happened and we need to review the big breaking news because it is big. The Supreme Court 9-0 decided to instate President Trump's travel ban for the very reasons you can imagine they decided to reinstate the president's travel ban. That is, it is perfectly within the power of the president to do what he did. The president of the United States has the power to restrict immigration in the United States. They made two exceptions to the reinstatement of the order. The first exception is the plaintiffs, the named plaintiffs in the lawsuit. The injunction doesn't apply to them. Now, that's somewhat humorous. Uh, the Supreme Court has a sense of humor here because none of the plaintiffs are actually affected By the case, Uh, they were filing it on behalf of other people. Now, the second one is somewhat more directly related to the plaintiffs, but not the plaintiffs, and that is people who have uh, pre existing relationships to individuals and entities in the United States. So, a spouse or close relative of um, someone who lives here an employee of a major multinational company that's headquartered in the United States, so a Google or an Apple or a Microsoft, things like that, those people will be allowed to come into the country. But refugees are now blocked from coming into the country for 120 days. And people from those six uh, countries in the Middle East, what are Iran, Iraq, Syria, Sudan, and Libya, they are prohibited from coming into the country now. This is actually a very big win for the president of the United States, which is why the media has immediately shifted to the health care bill and is completely ignoring this because they all said it was going to be unconstitutional. You had Jeffrey Toobin on CNN running his lips saying there's no way the Supreme Court would would do this. The, 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 The lower courts were right. Well, the Supreme Court, nine to zero. Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor agreed that the president has the power to temporarily block people from coming into this country. Big win for the president, big win for executive power here. Even Neil Gorsuch, who is skeptical of executive power, did this. And the most amazing thing is that they did it without an opinion. It was a, a per curiam decision, which means that the court just issued this as the Supreme Court. There was no name attached to it. Nine of them agreed to do it. Without any order, just that the president has the power to do this. After all of these legal experts coming on TV saying the president didn't have power, the lower courts got it right, nine to nothing. The Supreme Court says, yes, the president can do it. Just a reminder that many of the, the supposed legal experts on TV, it's a bunch of BS. They're liberal activists. The other thing the Supreme Court did, which has implications for Georgia, because Georgia has a Blaine Amendment, and this is the Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia, Missouri versus the state of Missouri. This is the case where the preschool that is run by a church applied for a state grant, to put uh, recycled tires on its playground instead of wood chips. The state turned them down solely for the reason that they were run by a church. Even though the playground is accessible to the public, it is a public ministry of the church, it does outreach, on and on and on and on. Um, the, The Supreme Court said you can't prohibit a group from accessing federal funds if the sole basis... For doing that is that they are religious. Now, Neil Gorsuch, interestingly enough, makes a a, did a, a concurring decision where he says he doesn't think that this this question of status versus action is sustainable. See, what the Supreme Court did today is they said you can't deny people federal funds just because their status is Christian. What if they argued that it wasn't that these people were Christian, it was that these people were using the playground as a church ministry? And Sonia Sotomayor and her dissent, by the way, very, very hostile. A a Democrat friend of mine has said to me repeatedly through the years that the most hostile people to religion are lapsed Catholics. So Sonia Sotomayor, In this dissent, she doesn't even sign off as uh, I respectfully dissent, just I dissent. And she begins it with never, ever has the Supreme Court done this. And her point is that this playground is a ministry of the church, and because the church calls it a ministry, it is performing a religious function by providing education to low-income children. See, Sonia Sotomayor knows the next fight is coming, and that fight is over school choice and school vouchers. Can religious schools compete? Can parents direct government funds to private religious schools for their kids' education? And this case, they tried to narrowly tailor it with a footnote. And that is footnote three in the case that says this only applies to school playgrounds. Interestingly enough, only four justices of the Supreme Court would go along with this. So if you read the case, it's very funny how the case starts. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts writing for the majority except for footnote three because they couldn't get more than four people to sign off on the footnote, uh, Thomas and Gorsuch both wrote concurring opinions saying they dissented from the footnote that, they're, that this case applies to more than just playgrounds. But otherwise, it was 7-2. to two. Breyer and Kagan signed up with Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, Roberts, and Kennedy. That is a pretty big... You know, interestingly enough, this is really one of the last big cases that the Obama administration weighed in on. The Obama administration um, offered up an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief for the state of Missouri, arguing that Missouri should be allowed this distinction. The Obama administration has now... Now that all the cases are concluded from the Obama years, the Obama administration... Ends its historic run with the worst record of any president before the Supreme Court. The Reagan administration, for example, won 76% of the cases argued before the Supreme Court. The Bush administration won 63% of the cases argued before the Supreme Court. Bill Clinton won 65% of the cases argued before the Supreme Court. Barack Obama won 50%. Think about that. A 50-50 chance of winning if you were Barack Obama. Not only that, the Obama administration will also go down in the history books as having more 9 to nothing opinions against it than any other president in history. The Obama administration has, has now, as it's gone off the books now, seeing the Supreme Court weigh in against it nine to nothing more than any other president in American history. That's pretty amazing as the Supreme Court wraps up its term. Now, uh, Justice Kennedy did not retire. I didn't expect him to retire today. There's been big rumors that he would retire. A lot of people are saying uh, with the other case the Supreme Court decided to take for next year, he may stick around. That would be the masterpiece cake um, case. The facts of this case are pretty disturbing. You have a Christian baker in in Colorado who was intentionally targeted by gay rights activists to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. Not only did they want him to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding, he offered to give them a cake. He just wasn't going to custom make a cake. Not only did they want him to custom make a cake, they wanted him to customize the colors in the cake. They wanted him to do a rainbow pattern in the cake. They wanted him to put a same-sex wedding topper instead of a bride and a groom. I think it was two brides in this case. They wanted him to do all this extra work, and he said, no, I'm sorry. I'll give you—I I, I pre-make wedding cakes, and you can take one of these wedding cakes, and you can put your own topper on it, but I'm not going to custom make you a rainbow cake. And they sued him, and he's been put out of business. And he's appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has said they would take it. What's so interesting about that is Anthony Kennedy and where he might come down on this case. More details when we come back. Man, I've got some angry friends emailing me right now. (laughs) Oh, things I can't say, talk about on the radio. Um, Okay, so... The Supreme Court is taking the Master Peak case, Kate. Now, last year the Supreme Court declined to take the case of Baronelle Stutzman. Baronel Stutzman is a florist in um Washington State, and she refused to provide flowers for a same-sex wedding. And the men involved did not file a complaint. What happened was the attorney general of the state of Washington read about it on Facebook, and he decided to sue Baronel Stutzman. The men did not cooperate in the litigation, but she's lost her business. This was her parents' business, um, and she's the second-generation owner. The business is now lost. It looks like her home is going to be lost. Uh, they are in the process of contemplating their, a local court judge on whether or not they'll also take her 401K to pay the fines. The Supreme Court didn't take that case, and one of the big reasons people speculated they didn't take that case is because it would have been 4-4, four to four. and uh, Antonin Scalia was not there. So that what makes that interesting is that if Anthony Kennedy, I mean, this isn't a hard game to play, if Anthony Kennedy was going to rule against Baronel Stutzman, he would have gone on and taken the case, knowing that all of these cases are coming down the bike. But Kennedy did not go along with the... Uh, four liberal justices. So they did not take the case. So they let the lower court stand against Baronel Stutzman. Well, suddenly they are taking the case. And because they are taking the case, it looks like maybe Kennedy is going to stick around and... and Side with the Christians on this one. After imposing gay marriage on the country, uh, allow Christian businesses to opt out. We'll see. I mean, you can only play this so much, but you see how this shapes up. It's interesting, fascinating, fascinating decisions from the Supreme Court today. They are also um, they decided to decline to rule that concealed carry is a constitutional right. There was a case out of California where an individual um, sued claiming that he had the constitutional right to carry his firearm in public, and he lost the case. The Supreme Court has refused to go down that path. Uh, We'll see. The other thing to come out of the Supreme Court today is that um, the court, by and large, is moving to the right with Gorsuch. Very, very conservative decisions from Neil Gorsuch. Um, He's to the right of john roberts he's to the right of sam alito most people thought he would line up a bit with sam alito he's more of a clarence thomas now when we come back the cbo score on obamacare i got people fighting about it on email right now nine after the hour eric erickson here on wsb if you want more uh information on the supreme court cases on religious liberty uh check out my book you will be made to care uh came out last february it covers these cases including the masterpiece cake case that will be before the supreme court now next year i should note that that surprised almost every legal scholar left and right today nobody thought the supreme court was going to take this case So a lot of people are encouraged uh, that the Supreme Court did take the case today. Let's move on, though, from the Supreme Court, get into the Congressional Budget Office scoring. At the top of the hour, I I do want you to know uh, an important preview for the top of the hour. There is a big story today about Georgia politics, in particular, the race for governor next year and how it's affecting national politics already. Um, it, it I can't do it justice in this segment I wanted to do it this morning when I was filling in for Herman but the Supreme Court uh, case is all broke and I needed to cover that uh, on the fly and had to put it off knowing I could get to it this evening but I really do encourage you to stick around for six o'clock because it's a pretty big story and the implications are pretty pretty staggering uh, particularly for the Democrats but I want to get into the CBO score right now it has come out the CBO says 22 million people are going to be in uninsured. Under the Republican plan. And Democrats and the media, but I repeat myself, are already saying the Republicans are going to kill people. According, Have they even read the CBO report? Because all I had to do was skim it this afternoon and I got the relevant data. 18 million of those 22 million people are people who will cancel their insurance because they don't want it. Remember, Obamacare has an individual mandate. You are fined by the government if you don't have health insurance. And so what a lot of people are doing is that they are paying money for minimal plans that they cannot actually use in order to avoid a penalty that costs more than that insurance plan. I got a friend of mine who he's got a Blue Cross Blue Shield plan. He cannot use it anywhere in the state of Georgia except an emergency room. But he got it because it's cheaper for him to pay for this plan than it is to pay for the fine. He pays out of pocket to his doctor. And he's he's extremely healthy. I mean, he's a fitness trainer. He's, he's in very good health. And he pays out of pocket to his doctor. And it winds up actually being... Um, Cheaper for him to do it this way. So he's someone who would cancel his plan. And he would be one of the people the Congressional Budget Office says is going to lose his health insurance. Now, interestingly enough, of the 18 million people who would voluntarily drop their plan, 5 million of them are on Medicaid. Which is free to the people on it five million people would cancel Medicaid. There's no cost to them for Medicaid, but they would still cancel it, which really is a pretty damning indictment of how bad Medicaid is that you have a group of people who would still cancel it when it's free to them. Now, according to the Congressional Budget Office, there will be four million additional people or so who will lose health insurance? And the question is, do you believe the Congressional Budget Office, which has never actually made a correct prediction in the history of the organization? I think the Republicans are willing to take that chance. And primarily the Republicans are willing to take that chance because they see the, the hysteria right now. And when they actually do pass their plan and it doesn't pay out, it'll just discredit the Democrat argument. That seems to be their gamble, at least. We'll see. It's still not a good plan. It's still not a repeal plan. It really isn't. You know, let me play you Rand Paul audio from earlier today. Rand Paul was on with George Stephanopoulos. Actually, it was yesterday. And Rand Paul described the problems that he has as a Republican with this plan. Well, what we can do is, if they cannot get 50 votes, if they get to impasse, I've been telling leadership for months now that I will vote for a repeal, and it doesn't have to be 100% repeal. So, for example, I'm for 100% repeal. That's what I want. But if you offer me 90% repeal, I'd probably vote for it. I might vote for 80% repeal. What percent is it but now? Realize that this, realize, say hey, just one second, realize that the Obamacare subsidies in this bill are actually greater under the Republican bill than they are under the Current Obamacare law. That is not anywhere close to repeal. Correct. The subsidies go up. The taxes and penalties go down. So the question is well, the question is why do it if it's not repeal? Why do the Republican plan? Well, they think they're keeping promises. The reality, though, is what George Will said on Meet the Press yesterday. repeal and replace Obamacare is extremely popular, 80 to 15, and Republicans... Except a lot of people don't understand what that means. Of course. (laughs) And it's a a sort of a wash in the rest of the country, which means, I think at the end of the day, people are going to wake up and see, no matter what we pass, it's not repeal and replace, it's tweak and move on to something we'd like to do, which is infrastructure and tax reform. Mm -hmm. Yes, they, they're ready to be done with it. They think they got to do something, so this is what they're going to do. It's a terrible plan. doesn't do any good. It, it, it nibbles around the edges of Obamacare. It is not a repeal plan. Do not believe a single person who tells you this is a repeal plan. It's not. Does it improve Obamacare? Slightly in some areas. But does it repeal it? No. And by the way, it's going to wind up long term costing more than Obamacare. Why? Because Obamacare paid for itself with taxes and they're getting rid of those taxes. So the deficits and the debt are going to go up even more. That is your Republican Party at work. 53 after the hour, Eric Erickson here, News 95.5, AM 750, WSB. Please stick around for the top of the hour. This amazing national story now about the Georgia gubernatorial race that hasn't even really happened yet. Oh, and you should know, the New York Times has conducted a review now, based on the Secretary of State's uh, finalized data, of turnout in the Karen Handel-John Ossoff race, and she, by the way, being sworn in this evening in Washington, and it (laughs) turns out that the Democrats could have turned out every Democrat possible in the 6th Congressional District, and they still would have lost the race. So, the, the upshot for Democrats here, according to the New York Times, is that their base really is motivated and they really are showing up. And that looks good for 2018. The the downside for Democrats is twofold. Uh, black voters didn't show up. And two, why did they spend $30 million in a race where there weren't enough Democrats to win, even if they all showed up? Think about that one for a minute. Supposedly, by the way, you know. They're running a profile in Roll Call, a a hagiographic profile of John Ossoff's campaign manager, uh, who they note in the profile has lost every congressional race he has ever worked on. He has lost. And yet they're heralding him as the savior of the Democratic Party, who's going to be in high demand and who is fit and qualified to run a presidential campaign. This is the second coming of Robbie Mook, I guess, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager. Now, my guess is that they wrote this profile before the race. They expected him to win, and he didn't, but they had it in the queue anyway. They did some quick edits and put it out there. Ridiculous to think that this guy is being promoted as some sort of savior of the Democratic Party when he just wasted $30 million on a race. The New York Times review of data shows they couldn't win. In a divided field with a runoff, they couldn't win. Even, remember folks, remember, the Democrats were able to go in and get a district court to reopen voter registration so they could go out and handpick people to go register to vote. And they did. Several thousand people went. And they still lost the election, getting fewer votes. Then the man who ran against Tom Price in November, who spent zero dollars outside his registration fee. That is staggeringly unbelievable. That is just amazing. Democrats are really good at wasting other people's money. And they did again this time. And now some poor Hollywood actors and actresses have had to go off to therapy because of it. (laughs) When we come back, this uh, this big story developing about the Georgia Governor's race. And it has a whole lot of implications for Democrats, but it's one that Republicans really need to pay attention to the shape and direction and future of Georgia. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Lift off. We have a lift off. It is 6.08. I am Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. As if you didn't know, and if you didn't, well, welcome. Guess what? Radar is clear. Can you believe it? Oh, oh, oh. I'm sorry. I zoomed, zoomed out and all the way up near... Uh, Tryon and Lafayette. I love Lafayette, Georgia. Yes, there is a Lafayette, Georgia. There is a shower and it's very light up in the mountains. Uh, north of L.J. there's also a shower. But otherwise, in the actual listening area, the radar is clear today. Hallelujah. Y'all, there is a big story today that has been circulating all over the series of tubes known as the interwebs by Selena Zito. Selena Zito... As uh, one of the few reporters in the nation last year to regularly chronicle the plight of blue-collar workers in America, the opioid epidemic, and, and to note that there was something happening out there that made it very possible for the president to get elected. Uh, she's one of the very few reporters to note that, and in fact, a number of prominent Inside the Beltway reporters now um, just drip with disdain when they talk about her because they were wrong and she was right. Uh, she was right very gracefully about it, but she regularly now reminds people that there was a phenomenon a lot of people missed and she has written a very deep profile of the Georgia gubernatorial race for 2018 and not the Republican side of it she has written about the Democratic side of it and what it portends for both Republicans and Democrats you see right now on the Democratic side you've got Stacey Abrams And Stacey Evans, Stacey Evans is, although she she lives in suburbia, she is trying to push her background as a rural North Georgian uh, growing up in a blue collar family and play at the heartstrings. And there are a number of Republicans who she makes nervous. Stacey Abrams, on the other hand, uh, was the minority leader in the House. She just stepped down so she could focus on her gubernatorial run. And she is an urban Atlanta um, from the black community, voted against some changes to the Hope Scholarship that people view negatively, voted against expansion of the Hope Scholarship, or voted to contract the Hope Scholarship, rather. And she doesn't necessarily have the uh, core support of some of the upper-income white community in the Democratic Party because they think she misspit money on voter registration efforts that some of them view as scams. So there's this big dynamic shaping up, and as Selena Zito notes, and she notes fairly and accurately, and I don't mean to offend any of you, the Republicans don't exactly have a stellar crop of candidates right now. Maybe someone will say there's rumor of a, of a Kathy potentially running for the, the Chick-fil-A family, not Dan, apparently someone else. I don't know who um, eh, there are rumors of other people getting into the race. But right now, there isn't necessarily an inspirational candidate running for governor on the Republican side, or at least not one with a lot of visibility. So her point is that if Stacey Evans is the Democrat, then Republicans need to worry because the Democratic Party in Georgia, which is a state that nationally the Democrats recognize they need to win, the Georgia Democrats will have decided that they need to go back to focusing on uh, white, rural, blue-collar roots. A vote for Stacey Evans, the Democrats are saying— Is a vote for blue-collar white politics, a return to blue-collar white politics in the Democratic Party. A vote for Stacey Abrams is a vote for the, the urban minority white coalition, the urban core versus the suburbs and exurbs. And it's a big fight because most Democrats out there, in fact, most Democratic strategists believe that the pathway forward for the Democrats is to write off the exurbs and suburbs and focus on massive minority turnout in cities. And that is Stacey Abrams' path to victory. Now, there are some flaws in all of this thinking that you should know about. That even someone like Selena Zito, who I admire greatly and think she's a great reporter, but a, in building a story like this, she can miss some of the fine details that you should not miss. Four zero four eight seven two zero seven five zero is the number or 1-800-WSB-TALK. Let's go back to 2014. That was the last gubernatorial race in Georgia. And that was the one where Democrats, I mean, they had to go back to the 70s to recruit a Nunn and a Carter. They had um, Michelle Nunn run for the Senate, Sam Nunn's daughter, against David Perdue. And they had Jason Carter, Jimmy Carter's grandson, run for governor. Jason Carter had been in the state Senate, actually has some bipartisan credibility, uh, Republicans even in the state Senate spoke highly of him, even if they weren't going to support him. There wasn't a lot of bad blood there. And he run ran a rather centrist, uh, reach out to everybody campaign. In fact, Jason Carter ran a campaign that uh, was a good campaign, and he ran it against, if we are honest, and I mean no disrespect, a, a governor who wasn't all that popular at the time. Nathan Deal had... Upset the apple cart among Republicans on religious liberty issues, on gun issues. He wasn't popular with Democrats. He wasn't popular with teachers. Uh, His popularity statewide was under 50%. Uh, somewhere between forty-five and fifty, which typically isn't a good sign for an incumbent running against the young, charismatic Democrat who all the media adored. I swear to you that the the Atlanta media had—well, I, I can't even say that. Let's just say the the Atlanta media had thigh sweats for Jason Carter. It was appalling. The, the level of fawning profiles that Jason Carter could get. He could bat his eyelashes at a reporter and you would get 5,000 words on how Jason Carter's poop doesn't stink. And he lost to Nathan Deal, who wasn't as popular as some people tend to think. The point here is that Democrats have been saying for a very long time that they were going to shift Georgia to the Democrats. Now they only lost the state in 2002 2004, but they think there's been a massive demographic shift. You know, they thought the same thing in, in the sixth congressional district. They thought that the demographics had shifted so much because Donald Trump only won it by a point and a half that now is their time. They are going to seize power back from the Republicans. And it didn't work out in the sixth. And it didn't work out in 2014 for him. And in 2014, I remember Stacey Abrams being interviewed and saying that the earliest that the Democrats thought they could take back Georgia was 2018. But privately, they were willing to concede 2022 would be their time. A lot of them looked at 2016 and saw that Donald Trump One with only one and a half percent in places like Cobb County or in the sixth, that suburban Atlanta area. And they misinterpreted the situation. See, they looked at that and they thought it was about the Republicans. When really it was just about Donald Trump himself. Who wasn't very popular with suburban Republican women. And to some degree is still not popular with suburban Republican women, but he's not toxic. And see, this is a hard conversation to have even with a lot of Trump supporters when they hear you say because they love him. that When they hear you say he's not popular or he's not liked, they, they, they immediately equate that with the words despised and hated, which I'm not saying at all. I'm just saying that, that he is not their preference. He's not their cup of tea. But he's not hated, and he's not despised. And the Democrats still are in these areas. And that's why there are a lot of Republicans out there who are looking at this, and they're hoping and praying the Democrats in Georgia don't go the Stacey Evans route, the we got to focus on blue-collar white voters route. And what I'm telling all of them is, you people freaked out about Jason Carter as well for doing that. And he still lost. When you're looking at a slickly produced video, a biographical video designed to put Stacey Evans in her very best light. And it connects with blue collar people of faith, white voters from rural Georgia. That's the design of the video. It's designed to upset the, the apple cart. It's designed to make Republicans nervous, to build buzz among Democrats that this is the horse we should back. But it doesn't mean she's going to win governor. And what I suspect is going to happen again in 2018 is we're going to see a bunch of Democrats pour a bunch of money into Georgia, just like they did in 14 and 16 and 17, saying now's our chance, now's our time, but it's still not going to be. it's 26 after the hour here in atlanta on wsb where there's no rain no storms thank goodness y'all it is the 10th anniversary of the iphone now this is actually probably a bigger deal than what a lot of people want to acknowledge and, and you know full disclosure if you're a regular listener to this program you know i'm an apple junkie i mean i i would until they tore it down recently i would go to new york and walk seven times around the cube and and pray to steve jobs each time when i would i would go on my hajj to to the apple store in, in new york city i totally am a cultist totally when it comes to apple but you still have to recognize that the iPhone, there may not be in our lifetime another technological product uh, that so fundamentally changes technology. And I don't mean that hyperbolically, but when you think about what did phones look like the day before the iPhone, there were no phones that looked like it. The one that came the closest still had a slide-out physical keyboard. You're hard-pressed now to find a phone that has a physical uh, QWERTY keyboard on it. The whole thing has changed. The way you use the Internet has changed. The way you talk to people has changed. And, you know, I got to say, one of the things that society did with the cell phone is they traded quality for convenience, there is no cell phone conversation or there was no cell phone conversation that sounded as good as the cell phone or as, as a landline conversation. There just weren't cell phone conversations are typically worse in quality, but thanks to Apple baking in, uh, HD, um, radio quality or HD voice quality phone calls. If you're on an iPhone to iPhone, it actually sounds better now than a landline phone because of the, the, the quality, the bandwidth. Uh, it was a revolutionary device. Steve Jobs was right about that. It, it was a revolutionary device. And interestingly enough, no one, including Steve Jobs, could have predicted just how big a deal the iPhone would be. More than a billion iPhones have been sold, making it the single most popular piece of technology ever. it is 639 and i am eric erickson this is wsb okay so they've got me doing some sort of prize giveaway thingy well half of it you have to stick around and listen to mark aram to actually get the prize um so 10 listeners are gonna win four packs not six packs just four packs for the sweet. At the Gwinnett Braves game at Cool Ray Field for the July 20th game. That's the Gwinnett Braves versus the Indianapolis Indians. Oh, Braves and Indians. It is a PC nightmare galore. Thursday. Uh, july 20th it's a 7 5 p.m game so you should be able to make it there by 8 5 or 9 p.m if you're coming from downtown and traffic on a thursday the gwinnett Braves versus the indianapolis indians uh the mark aram show is going to be broadcasting from the mega suite there 7 p.m to 9 p.m uh mark's going to be there longoria buford charlie's going to be there um, And it looks like 40 of their closest friends, if all this goes according to plan. So now, apparently, what I'm supposed to do is tell you that during Mark's show, sometime in the first half hour, you're going to hear a sound. And when you hear the sound, you can call and win tickets or some such. And what is the sound they're going to hear? Where is Hector? That's like the dumbest sound ever they could have picked, isn't it, folks? My goodness gracious. What a waste. But nonetheless, when you hear that sound this evening, I personally wanted to get Mark to say something like onomatopoeia or something, but nope, nope. They wanted to go for the world news tonight. Where is Hector garbage? And so that's what they chose. They didn't ask me. But if you hear that garbage in the next half hour when Mark comes on, you get a chance to win baseball tickets. So there you go. Now, have I done my bit for king and country? I think so. I can move back to the news now that I have less time to talk. Seattle's minimum wage has been jacked up to $15 an hour because that's what the left wanted, to subsidize people who failed at life and decided they needed a government handout in the terms of a big minimum wage hike. And do you know what's happened? Exactly what I, on this here program, told you would happen. Unemployment has gone up. Not only has unemployment gone up, but benefits have gone down. There's a new study out. Um, It is, oh, a University of Washington, a team of economists at the University of Washington, which means a group of liberals at the University of Washington, Have released a study on the impact of the $15 an hour minimum wage. And it turns out that the poor people getting the minimum wage now earn less per month than they got before. Why? Because they've cut the hours that low wage workers can work. Not only that, they're not hiring low wage workers anymore. And I take that back. They they jumped it to $13 an hour in in January on the way to $15 incrementally over the next year. And these economists are already waving the red flag that if you get it all the way to $15, you're going to devastate the local economy and you're going to hurt the very people this claim to help, the poor people. You're going to hurt poor people because guess what? Employers can't afford to pay $13 an hour. Now, this is obvious. It was obvious to all of us. It was obvious to economists. And what I found striking in this story is that even liberal economists were privately willing to express concern. Let me, let me read you the direct sentence. Even some liberal economists have exe- expressed concern, often privately, privately. That employers might respond differently to a minimum wage of $12 or $15, which would affect a far broader swath of workers than the part-time fast food and retail employees who typically dominate the ranks of minimum wage earners. Yes, they would. It was all easily foreseeable. And now the poorest of the poor in Washington state are being hurt because of liberal good intentions on the road to hell. Now, you're not going to hear that sounder yet because it's not time. What you are going to hear is the traffic sounder as we go check with Doug Turnbull. Thank you very much. Ah, oh, traffic in Atlanta. It was so predictable. You know what else is predictable? So remember, after the election, and this is just so fantastic. After the election, a bunch of illegal aliens, instead of returning to their countries of origin, fled to Canada. Because, you know, if if the Cro-Magnon authoritarian Nazi Donald Trump was going to be president of the United States, where else would you go but the northern nation that would surrender in a heartbeat if he actually were as bad as they claimed he was? So they fled to Canada. <laughs> and now they can't get asylum. <laughs> There's a backlog of asylum refugee seekers. And because of the backlog of asylum refugee seekers, all these people who fled to Canada thinking that they would get refugee status, they're not. And they may not ever. And some of them now can't get back into the United States where their families were. See, they were waiting, thinking they would go up there, they would get refugee status in Canada, and then they would be able to bring their whole families with them once they got refugee status. Well, they can't get refugee status up there now, and they can't get back into the United States to get their families out. They're stuck in limbo, they're calling it. No, it's not limbo. Again, easily foreseeable consequence of being an idiot. So much of what is premised by left-wing policy and left-wing ideas are easily foreseeable outcomes for being idiots. (laughs) My goodness. Oh, the minimum wage, the asylum seekers. Oh, and guess what? Emissions are going down and carbon dioxide is going up. And they don't know why, because, you know, I'm sure there's a scientific model out there that they haven't considered because their computer models told them everything they need to know. And now they don't know why it's happening, but trust them on the whole global warming thing, because surely they're right about that. You're going to hear another sounder, and this, too, is not the sounder that you're supposed to wait for. You got to wait for Mark Aram to hear that sounder to win the baseball tickets. This one's not it. 54 after the hour it is i in my fifth hour of radio ending my fifth hour of radio oh my goodness hey want to hear the most annoying sound in the world (laughs) guys 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 well now there's an even more annoying sound in the world let's play it where is hector when you hear that in Mark Aram's show in the next 30 minutes, you can win baseball tickets. Yes, seriously. When you hear that sound, of all the sounds in the world to play, that's the one they picked. <laughs> I just had to give them a hard time. All right, before we get out of here, I got to tell you guys that, um, well, they're lining up the book tour now for October. And there are several breweries where we may be going to. And if you pre-order the book you uh, before you wake, you can bring it and I will sign it for you. I will. And if you want to pre-order the book, you can text the word WAKE to 444-999. There's also a big story that just hit the wire in the past few minutes. CNN has gotten rid of three journalists, and not just any three journalists, but a Pulitzer Prize winner has been tossed by. Well, he resigned. He was forced out. So CNN over the weekend ran a salacious story about Anthony Scaramucci, who was one of President Trump's uh, campaign chairmen. And they said that he had dealings with the Russians and a Russian development fund. And there's speculation that he and Jared Kushner were directing funds into the United States from the Russians to help the president. It's a big, salacious, scandalous story. And it wasn't true at all. CNN went so far as to delete the entire story and they have fired these people um it, it is oh, what are their names just cuz you know they're going to be hired by the new york times or someone no doubt uh thomas frank who wrote the story eric lickblau who was the editor of the unit and lex harris who was the editor of cnn money they've all gone frank worked for usa today and newsday for 3 decades until he came to cnn uh, Lick Blau was a veteran of the New York Times, won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting in 2006. He was hired by CNN three months ago. And Harris was the executive editor of CNN Investigates and the executive editor of CNN Money. They're all gone. Running garbage stories because you believe them and they have bad sourcing, but they comport to your worldview of the president can even get you fired at CNN. Good for the network, showing some integrity in this story. All right, folks, remember, hear the annoying sound with Mark Aram in the next 30 minutes. And I will return to you without an annoying sound tomorrow night.